You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you are receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church. Uh, Thank you guys for being here this morning. Um, If you haven't been trekking with us, we are in the middle and really at the tail end of our sermon series um, going through the book of Galatians. So if you have your Bible, if you haven't done it already, you can open it up right to Galatians 5. Uh, if you don't have your Bible, no problem. I got the, the, the text right on the screen behind me. Uh, let's just get into it this morning. Uh, before dialing into Galatians 5, I want to I sh- explain and show how we've gotten to this point, kind of as a, as a quick review of where we've been and how we've gotten here. So you will recall that uh, Paul opens his letter to the Galatians by sharing a significant amount of biographical information, right? There's like, here here are a few uh, moments of my life that I want to talk to you about, Galatians. Uh, Naturally, this means we saw how the book of Acts kind of maps on to Paul's life, explained in Galatians 1 and moving into Galatians chapter 2. So Paul uses his experience, he's doing this for a particular reason, right? He's not just talking about his life just to talk about his life. Paul, what Paul's doing is that he wants to show from his life that there's only one true gospel. It was given to him by Jesus. That's what we read in Acts. And one of the, Paul, one of the points Paul makes is that all other gospels are false gospels, or they're an imposter. And that's what he's trying to show the churches throughout the region in Galatia. And he does that with, with this kind of biographical summary, right? Uh, next, Paul gives a theological argument about the nature and depth of the gospel of free grace. That's what we see at the end of chapter 2, moving into chapter 3 and chapter 4. Um, we see, in specifically chapter 3 and 4, Paul uses Genesis and the life of Abraham to show how faith proceeds and dominates over the law. Therefore, to be made right with God, this is probably the, the central theological tenet that Paul's drawing out, to be made right with God, you need to be justified by God through faith in Christ. And he's getting this from his Old Testament. As a matter of fact, we spent so much time in Genesis, <laughs> some of you may have thought we were in a sermon series on Genesis and not Galatians. But that's an important point, nonetheless. Like Paul's reading his Bible. And so we need to be reading our Bible as well in order to understand God. Now, last week we began to enter into a third and kind of final theme in Galatians, which has to do with the implications of the gospel. Uh, In other words, we see what it means to respond to faith. What does it look like to live your Christian life? I mean, nothing's going to get more uh, applicable than you know, Galatians 5 and 6, and when we began to see that last week, when we read Galatians 5, 1, right? Uh, we saw this last week, and this, this verse, Galatians 5, 1, is one of those verses where you can just kind of highlight and you can underline it. And uh, it's this, here it is one more time. Let these words sink in. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand therefore, therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. For freedom, Christ has set us free. You are free, Christian. P- 
period. <laughs> and Paul says, don't go back to what you were set free from, right? Don't go back there. Now, I'm not, I'm not looking to rehash last week, but this message builds upon the emphatic point that your freedom in Christ causes you to love. And that's where Paul ended last, last week's sermon. Um, you're to love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that is the fulfillment, Paul says, of the law. You're free to love. You no longer need to fear, but you are free to love God in others and really, in really radical ways in ways that this world just does not know of. And, and this morning, Paul pushes the ball down the field by saying the way we love others is through the Holy Spirit. Uh, it is in and through the Spirit where you can experience and live in a way where love abounds, right? Love excels in your life. I mean, who doesn't want that for themselves? That Where they would just be oozing with the love of God and for God and the love for other people. And that's kind of where we're at today, but here's the conundrum, right? Here's the conundrum presented in Galatians 5. And this is really important to grasp. In you, right now, as I preach and as you listen, there is a war at work. There is a battle taking place inside your heart. And we have to acknowledge and then contend with the battle. Now, we do not acknowledge and contend with the battle so that we become paralyzed, like that some people respond in that way to conflicts. They just don't know what to do with it. That's, that's not what God wants for us this morning. But we acknowledge the conflict. We contend with the battle so that we can experience true freedom. So we, we can't recoil, right? We can't recoil from the conflict that's taking place inside your heart, that's taking place inside of Sean Powers' heart right now. But we need to press into the battle. Before looking at our passage in greater detail, um, I, I think it's important, it, let's, let's just for a moment, to step back and ask a bigger question. Who is the Holy Spirit? Like, I, I want to ask the question because He is just all over our passage. You know, we, we all know Jesus, right? E even non-Christians know of Jesus um, in a historical sense because history affirms the life of Jesus. And, you know, for Christians, our understanding of the gospel is because of Jesus. And, you know, we also understand God as a father because the Bible describes God in familial terms, right? Father. But the person of the Holy Spirit seems more ambiguous to our, uh, our rational and sensibilities, right? So who is the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, Notice I said third person, meaning the Holy Spirit isn't an it. It's a third person of the Trinity. The word spirit, we have a, a word in the Hebrew, we got a word in the Greek for, for spirit, is the word used um, from ancient times to describe and explain the experience of like God's divine power working in, upon, and around men, and understood by men as the power of God. 
Uh, for example, when God created the world, Genesis 1-1, he breathed it into existence. And God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Genesis 1, verse 2. In the New Testament, we read how the Spirit dwells among his people. The Holy Spirit is also the one who draws hell-bound sinners to God and reveals grace to a cold, dead heart. I've said this time and again, and I'll say it one more time. Um, the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Now listen, let this land on you. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is in you, Christian, is in every follower of Jesus Christ. So, the Holy Spirit is the power of God working in the life of a Christian. Now, that was just a flyby of the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's more that, that can be said, but it, and it just felt like it needed to take a moment to explain who the Holy Spirit is because it helps us understand who Paul is talking about in Galatians 5. The Holy Spirit is involved in the conflict. What does the Holy Spirit have to do with the conflict that is taking place in you and in me, the role of the Holy Spirit is to reveal who we are in our heart. The Spirit reveals internal realities. And what we're going to see in a moment is that um, our, our outward actions kind of serve as a diagnostic of our heart, to diagnose our heart, we have to understand the battle taking place, and, and the Holy Spirit helps us to understand the battle. Um, let, let, me, let me frame what's taking place in your heart with uh, Ephesians 6, right? Ephesians 6 tells us kind of about the mi- macro battle taking place, which, help, which will help you make sense of what is going on kind of on the micro level, which is inside your heart. It says in Ephesians 6, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, right? Over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So do you like even hear the bigness of the battle there? Like cosmic powers, spiritual forces in the heavenly places. And so the same great cosmic battle is taking place right where you sit. We battle against cosmic powers over this present darkness. And really, think about it, the primary battlefield is your heart. Here's how Paul describes the battle on the micro level, the heart level, right? But I say, it's Galatians 5, 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So we see that this battle is against competing desires. Desires of the flesh pull us one way, the desires of the Spirit can pull us another way, and oftentimes and most times, these desires are you know, waging war against each other. You know, that's what we get against and opposed in that passage. They're against each other, they're opposed to each other. 
here, here's an illustration, I think, um, of competing desires taking place on the m macro level and the micro level. I'm, I'm a huge, huge fan of the Chronicles of Narnia series by C.S. Lewis. You might have heard of the most popular book in the series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. I, I really like uh, the Chronicles of Narnia for, for many reasons, including what it does to engage like the imagination. One way it engages your imagination is by describing for you the great cosmic battle that takes place between good and evil. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, good versus evil is depicted with Aslan, right? Aslan the lion and his followers versus the uh, white witch and her followers. The book, and there's a movie as well, it ends when the armies of Aslan and the armies of the White Witch converge on the battlefield. Good versus evil is at war with each other. So we got this macro cosmic battle taking place. And when you read about the micro battle that takes place in specific characters in the book, none more evident than the battle which takes place in Edmund's heart. Uh, Edmund is uh, one of four siblings uh, who, who are pr uh, the primary characters in the book, and he's the least gracious of the four, to say the least. At least he starts out that way. Well, at one point in the story, Edmund kind of sneaks in to Narnia. He follows his sister Lucy, and shortly after entering Narnia, Edmund encounters the White Witch. To, and to gather information, the White Witch asks him, you know, what he desires. It's an interesting dialogue. And Edmund responds by saying he wants Turkish delight, like he wants his belly filled. You can see kind of what the white witch is doing. If they can just give him what he desires, then she can lure him over to the evil side. As the story develops, a conflict Within, within Edmund becomes really evident, right? He, he begins to realize the white witch is evil, and Edmund eventually realizes there is good at work which battles against the evil. It is through Edmund where we see the cosmic battle taking place in the heart. Uh, let me just quickly move to the end of the story um, the, of the line, the witch and the wardrobe. What we end up seeing with Edmund is that the cosmic victory and his personal victory are accomplished. They are accomplished, not because he was able to battle the evil. What we read in this story is that evil was defeated because another battled and defeated the evil on his behalf. I love the book. I love the entire series because it gives pictures and examples of the Christian life. And as it pertains to Galatians 5, we see that while the cosmic and personal battle between the flesh and the spirit continues to rage, victory is presently and ultimately found in Christ. Notice what Paul says in verse 16, because this is how the battle is won. You walk by the spirit. You walk by the spirit. It, this idea of walking, it's, um, it's like an action verb. It's one of four action verbs used in connection with the Spirit in this passage. Here, here are the other three. In addition to walking by the Spirit, we are led by the Spirit, verse 18. 
We are to live by the Spirit, verse 25, and also in verse 25, we've got to keep in step with the Spirit. We're, we, verbs are, are an action. We're doing something. What isn't being pushed is moralism or a classic pull-up-your-bootstraps or the kind of the get-her-done American mentality. You cannot defeat the flesh by relying on your flesh. That is the problem with so much of our thinking. We strive to overcome our fleshly desires without submitting to the Holy Spirit. Take the verb walk in verse 16 for as an example. It literally means to submit to the Holy Spirit day in and day out. Walking by the Spirit is a conscious decision. Now, there's a, there's a bit of tension between you and the Holy Spirit. Um, on the one hand, you choose to live by the Spirit, and on the other hand, the Spirit empowers you to live in a manner that honors God. So the goal is to embrace the tension, to fight the fleshly desires, and to choose to submit to the Spirit, knowing it's the same Spirit which empowers you. you know, I just can't overstate enough uh, the internal battle taking place. You can't overstate that. And and honestly, within Christianity, we don't talk about it enough. The desire of the Spirit are against the flesh, and the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit. It's an internal boxing match between two heavyweights. So, here is a question I think is essential to ask from verses 16 and 17. What is up with the desires of the flesh if Christians have been saved and are free? What's up? What's up with that? What's up with the desires of the flesh? Where's the victory in all this? Now, we have to get this right because there are theological positions that are preached that because you have been saved, your freedom means you are no longer subject to suffering or or sickness and you have nothing but health, wealth, and prosperity. Right, that's being preached everywhere. That's a false and dangerous gospel. For Christians, the victory we have through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ means we're no longer subject to the power of sin. Right, before Sean Powers was saved, right, he he was sinning, and sin had a stranglehold on. Him on me, right? But afterwards, that power was broken. When God saved me because of, the, because of Christ's death and resurrection, that power of sin was broken. Further, death no longer has a claim on the lives of a Christian, right? There's victory there. I mean, that's, a, that's an amazing victory. And the Holy Spirit confirms the victory, right? The Holy Spirit dwelling in you confirms that. But we know, however, until you die, until Jesus comes back, there is remaining sin, right? It is remaining sin that will ultimately be conquered, but it is remaining sin, the fleshly desires, that you are called to still fight against. I I found this quote insightful from uh, Timothy Keller. He said this, The sin underneath all sins, the motives of our disobedience, is always a lack of trust in God's grace and goodness and a desire 
There's the fleshly desire that Dr. Keller is talking about, a desire to protect and guard our own lives through self-salvation, which is what Paul has been hammering against (laughs) over and over again throughout the book of Galatians. You can't save yourself. By the Spirit, we fight against our lack of trust in God and move toward greater faith and freedom in who God is. This is why Paul says in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Meaning, the Spirit helps you see you are free from fear. The Spirit enables you to see you are free from works-based righteousness. And the Spirit enables you to see you are free from the power of fleshly desires. You are free from all that and free to... Now, this is really important. You are not just set free to wander in the wilderness. You are free to give yourself to someone. You are free to Jesus. You are set free from sin and set free to Jesus. You are set free from living selfishly. You are set free to love others radically. In an attempt to hammer home the point, we read, of two lists in Galatians 5. In verses 19 and 21, we got this list of works of the flesh, and in verses 22 and 23, we have the fruit of the Spirit. And uh, this latter list is cultivated by abandoning the old fleshly man and walking in the Spirit. These lists are Paul's way of, I think, being real with the Galatians. He's kind of getting into the the nitty-gritty. And it's it's a way of God being real with us, right? For example, there's no way, in my view, a Christian can read the list between verses 19 and 21 and not walk away with some sense of conviction. Like, you read that, and you're just confronted, you're like, whew, I'm in that. Um, it's a list that should put the holy fear of God in you. It, I know it does for me. This list, though, I mean, hear this, though. This is really important as well. This list is not here to condemn you. You, know, you, you, can, you can bank on Romans 8.1. There's there now, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? There's no condemnation because you've been justified. However, this list should drive you to Jesus. So let's talk about this list of fleshly desires for a moment. Instead of going through each item one by one, um, I found three, these three general categories uh, helpful. And we'll kind of touch on a few, I guess, but we won't hit them all. Uh, we just don't have time for all that. But here are three general categories that we can work with. One, Paul, Paul mentions how works of the flesh lead us to distort God's do- design for sex. You know, sexual morality and purity and sensuality. First three words of that list in verse 19. The second um, category we can kind of map onto this text is works of the flesh that can lead us to false religion. So we've got idolatry and sorcery. And then this third category, works of the flesh, um, they mess up our relationships. Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. And to boot, Paul also says, and things like these... Right? As if he's saying, you know what, this is not an exhaustive list. As a matter of fact, I'm sure if I pulled out the whiteboard right now and we did kind of a group think session with everybody here, we're going to add a lot of things to the list. But for now, let's just ask the question 
What do these three general categories have to do with fleshly desires, right? So sorry, parents, I need to say the word one, actually two more times. In my view, nothing defies the spirit, nothing battles against the spirit, like distorting God's design for sex and sexuality. I want to I talk about this in the context of marriage. There's several ways we could approach it, but let me just talk about it in that context. When done in the context of God's design, marriage between a man and woman um, is, is intimate, trusting, and loving, the way God designed it to be intimate, trusting, and loving. But when God's design is corrupted, you lose the intimacy, you break down the trust to love is tarnished. I'm, now, <laughs> I'm not saying marriages done within God's design are easy or not filled with sin, right? The sin of selfishness. <laughs> it's not what I'm saying. It's marriage is hard. But here's, here's the key. Christians who are married within God's design are empowered by the Holy Spirit to fight against the fleshly desires. I mean, take the first word on the list, which is sexual morality, right? In the Greek, it is pornea. And I know, after I said that, where all of your minds went to. The battle against pornea needs to be done by the Spirit. Now, this is an exa excellent example of what is going on in the heart. And the main problem is not that we desire sex. It is that our heart over-desires. When a good thing becomes our God, it creates over desires. Therefore, we begin to distort what God created as good. And we can broaden this out easily. I mean, take food, for example, right? Just food. I love food. Food is delicious. You can think about your favorite meal, right? But an over desire for food can make you a glutton. Second category is religion. Idolatry and sorcery fall under this heading. Um, the perennial problem with Israel in the Old Testament is that they often walked away from the God who like continually bailed them out over and over and over and over and over again, right? God bails out Israel. He says, guys, I'm your God. You are my people. Israel, you know, for a moment says, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they begin to wander away from the God that saved them. They were idolatrous. They were looking for other gods. The main, you know, this main problem in, with Israel in the Old Testament, it persists today in America, frankly. Just look around you. How many people worship money as one example of many? Um, Paul also mentioned sorcery. Uh, sorcery can refer to witchcraft, the occult, or even pagan practices. Uh, now, I've not seen tarot cards at anyone's house in this church, but sorcery is still present. Uh, I have a dear friend who planted a church in Salem, Massachusetts. And man, I got to tell you, that town is pagan, it is dark, and it is full of witches. Now let me bring this uh, home for a moment. And some of you may already know the story. Uh, last winter, the Powers clan went to uh, downtown Des Moines to kind of check out the indoor farmer's market. Think about that. Not only do we have our farmer's market in the summertime, but we go all in on the farmer's market. It is all year round because in the winter, we got an indoor farmer's market. That's how we roll. But after, and it was a mild winter day, 
um, afterwards, I decided to take the kids to uh, Papa John's sculpture, sculpture Park, you know, kind of on the other side of downtown. And so we make our way over there. And as we were walking um, to the park, we saw a coffee shop. And I'm like, hey, let's grab a cup of coffee and get some, you know, hot chocolates for the kids. And so we walk in, right? And right to my left, as just as I walk in the door, are two people studying the occult. They got the books out, they're reading, they're talking, they're dialoguing as if they were doing a Bible study. Which, you know, that's fine on its own. I've seen that before, right? You can go into a lot of cafes and you can probably see that from time to time. But as we continue to walk in, we realize there are tarot cards between the glass tabletop and the table. On all the tables. And then you just realize this place is just dark. It's so dark that my kids... Like, Dad, I don't feel comfortable here. It's just a coffee shop. It's so dark. My kids noticed. And so the battle for the spirit and against the flesh means keeping a laser light focus on the gospel and rejecting all idolatry and counterfeits. Because Witchcraft, the occult, sorcery, it still exists. And so we got to focus on the gospel. Uh, the last category, so I was, we had sex, religion. I've got this last category here, relationships, which is you know, relatively generous when you consider everything that is included in this particular category. It includes enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, and orgies. Now, you might be wondering to yourself, doesn't orgies belong in the sex category? But the Greek is better translated as carousing. Uh, carousing is like the dude at every party who wants to be the life of every party. He just can't stay away and he can't get enough. That's, that's the guy who carouses. And in the New Testament, carousing is often connected with drunkenness. So you can kind of see that picture, I'm sure, in your head. He's that guy. So what, all, what does all these items on this list have in common? Um, a complete, that's what they have in common, a complete and utter disregard for the people you are in relationship with. These fleshly desires create disunity and break down trust in our relationships. These fleshly desires are manifested because of selfishness. Me, 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 me. Right? Just look at the list. <laughs> just look at it. You, I could go and pull each word out and hammer at it, but I, I think you hope you get the point. These fleshly desires are at war against the desires of the Spirit within you. That's what we're up against. That's what we fight against. In verse 21, Paul gives a sobering statement. Man, this is sobering. Those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, I'm going to pause and make a parenthetical statement. A reason why we go through books of the Bible and we preach um, from you know, the text and we don't preach necessarily like topically, like this is what Sean Powers has to th- has to say and think. The reason why we preach in this particular way is because when we are confronted with Galatians 5.21, we gotta, we got to deal with it, we got to wrestle with it, because when you read that, it's like, whoa, that's intense. 
what this verse is not saying is that you need to live the, like, the pristine and perfect Christian life. Throughout the book of Galatians, we have read that your deep problem is sin. And because of sin, you need Jesus. Your goal is complete dependence upon the Holy Spirit so that you can become more like Jesus. And while God is perfecting you, you can look forward to a day when perfection will be complete. So you, you change progressively throughout your Christian walk by God's grace. What Paul's saying in verse 21 is that a person who has given himself over to fleshly desires does not have the Spirit and therefore does not have God. Like, just go read the second half of Romans 1. Paul's making the same argument there. Once again, in Galatians, Paul is creating like two categories of people in the world. We've already seen this several times throughout this book. There's two categories of people in this world, and this time he, he, he couches it with those who live by the flesh and those who live by the Spirit. So now that we've kind of looked at the flesh and these fleshly desires, let's look at the fruit of the Spirit, right? In verse 22, it says, living by the Spirit results in fruit. Now, full disclosure, after the Holy Spirit showed me Christ in my early 20s, I had no idea what fruit had to do with faith. I am not joking. I would, I would read that. I'm like, what, is, what, is, what are these people talking about? I literally, ha- I really thought to myself, what does an apple or a pear have to do with Jesus? And once again, um, <laughs> I had to apply an ounce of effort in the learning. And as soon as I did that, I realized Paul is building out another metaphor. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, right? Healthy trees bear good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit, right? See what Paul, excuse me, see what Jesus is saying? See the logic here? Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. There's no doubt Paul knew this. Paul knew this teaching of Jesus. That's what he's building off of. Fruit is an indicator of our experience in the Spirit. The bad fruit is the first list. The good fruit of the Spirit is the second list. So here's what we need to realize about the fruit which exists in our lives. Just a couple points of even application, how we can understand fruit in our own life. First, fruit grows gradually. This is silly. Take pineapples for uh, example. I, I asked Sharice if she knew what fruit grew the slowest, and I thought she knew everything, but she didn't know this. So I was really, really proud of myself. Uh, some pineapples take 24 months to grow. Now, on scale, that is terribly slow compared to other fruits. The point is this the question isn't, are you full grown, but are you growing? You know, the growth of pineapples does not give life, but they are a sign of life. It grows gradually. While fruit growing is gradual, it is also inevitable. Like, take kids, for example. Uh, in most situations, it is inevitable. inevitable. Kids will grow. Sometimes growth is, like, there's growth spurts, and sometimes growth is slow. Point is, it's inevitable. There is growth. So gradual and inevitable growth shows that growth is also 
internal. Again, we are back to heart work here. The external actions of an individual reveal what is going on inside the heart. You should also note that the word fruit here is in the singular. You would expect it, you know, kind of in a natural reading to be it to be in the plural, but it's in the singular, singular, which means Paul is not expecting expecting you to master everything on this second list. Uh, everyone excels in different ways. Everyone here in this room is different. God created you differently. You have different tendencies. You're predisposed differently. You have different backgrounds, right? So the bottom line is this. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will grow to become more like your Savior. And there's going to be some areas you're going to need to grow more than others. And everyone's going to be different. Which makes the comparison game extremely dangerous. Now, the list itself is remarkable. And once again, it's, it's no mistake. Now, we don't say it this way. With these list of this column of vices that we already talked about, it was easy to put, these into, put them into categories. Here, not the case. I don't, know what, I don't think there's discernible categories. What we do know is that the first word is love, which I don't think is a mistake. Paul's building off what he already talked about in the first half of Galatians 5. So the list is remarkable, beginning with love and then joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Everything on this list is what we long to grow in by God's grace. There is no law against these virtues, meaning the law does not prohibit you to act in these ways. You're free to act in these ways. And the law isn't going to produce this kind of virtue in you. The only way you can truly grow in these ways is through faith in Jesus, which gives you the freedom to live in these ways. And to drive home the point, Paul circles back to an idea we've already, already read about in Galatians 2.20. We can walk, live, and be led by the Spirit because we have crucified the old man. We've crucified our flesh. Here's Galatians 5.24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus, see that, have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. I need to repeat that winning the war against the desires of the flesh does not happen by performing virtue for the sake of virtue. There are elements of the world that can be virtuous, especially when it comes to what has been laid out in the second list, right? That's what Paul's getting after here. Winning the war against the desires of the flesh means we crucify the flesh over and over again. Galatians 5.24 is really a verse of optimism because it points back to Jesus. If you belong to Jesus, the passions and desires of the flesh have been nailed to the cross. What this shows is that the victory we have is found in Christ, right? Your victory isn't the pull-up-your-bootstraps mentality that I was talking about. Your victory is found in Christ. Christ has taken on all of your sin, and now the Holy Spirit resides in you so that you can live in a manner worthy of the gospel. The battle between the desires of the flesh and the desires of the spirit, um, it's being won. And there will be a day when the battle will be 
ultimately won. This verse and the entire passage, and one could even argue maybe all of Galatians, is about victory. It's about victory. The victory we have because we've been set free. It is about what God has done in you by the power of the Spirit. When you were justified through faith in Christ, your fleshly desires, past, present, future, were crucified with Christ. As a result, you can live in the reality of victory. I hope you understand what I'm saying here. The battle has ultimately been won because of Christ. We can live freely knowing that the battle in the end has been written. The battle at the end has been written. Christ has won. I want to provide a final word on the two lists given to us in this passage. Um, and uh, it's a final word that uh, you know came to mind as I was preparing because I, I, I can see the temptation to approach these lists with a moralistic lens. Um, approaching these lists with a moralistic lens will lead you to self-salvation. Like not doing the first list and doing the second list does not save you. Right? Think about that. <laughs> How often our, our hearts will do that to us. We become our own saviors by how we act. Um, you know, it's like, think about it this way, right? Let's say you're the guy, you know, who prays for a half hour, right? Every day you pray for a half hour and then you meet someone who prays for an hour and they're like, whoa, right? Now, you, you shouldn't feel condemned, Right? God is, an, God is after your heart here. But how prone we are to like, compare ourselves to other people. Look at that person. Look what he has done or hasn't been doing. Right? Don't approach these lists from a moralistic lens. Allow this to free you from unnecessary burdens that might be placed upon you. And man, the church is so good about placing unnecessary burdens on people. We've got to stop that. Instead, our focus, the church's focus, your focus is on Jesus Christ. So what are a few takeaways from Galatians 5, 16 to 25? First, if you are a, a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit is in you. It seems obvious to say that, but I'm guessing it's easy to forget. The Holy Spirit is in you. And if the Holy Spirit is in you, then the Holy Spirit is at work in you so that you may bear good fruit. You are reflecting what God is doing in your heart. That's the first takeaway. The Holy Spirit is in you, Christian. God is in you, Christian. Uh, second, there is a battle taking place in your heart. God, acknowledge that. You have to see that. Don't be passive in that. Acknowledge it, see it, be active in the fight. The works of the flesh are at battle with the Spirit. So, however, the next time you're faced with a choice, right? 
where you know that one path leads to fleshly desires and you know the other path is like where God is wanting you to go. Next time you're faced with a choice, guess what? You have the ability to choose the way of the Spirit. You can say no by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can say no to the fleshly desires. You ha- like For example, you have the ability in those moments, in those moments to dial into prayer and ask God to help you become more like Jesus in that moment. Like Remember that next time you're faced with a choice where the, where the war is obvious and raging. Uh, last, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, remember this, you do live in ultimate victory. Even though there is remaining sin, followers of Jesus are the most optimistic people in the world. Like, I don't care what your disposition is or, you know, what culture you grew up in or your family background or, you know, if you are extroverted or introverted or whatever. Like, however God has created you, you're the most optimistic person in the world if you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Listen, I know there are times when that is, that is hard to see. I get that. There are times when fleshly desires of sin get the best of you and kind of sin heaps condemnation on you. And that's a great time to remind yourself of the power of the gospel in your life and God's you know, justification. However, when, you, when the fog clears in those moments, right, you can still turn to Jesus in repentance and you can still know that Jesus has won the battle. The victory of Christ on the cross does not excuse the times when you submit to fleshly desires, but the victory of Christ continually calls you to pursue the Spirit and to put away fleshly desires so that, listen, so that you can become more like your Savior. So that you can bring glory to God by how you live your life. So the next time you walk down the street, right, and your neighbor comes out, doesn't know Jesus, you're building that relationship, and they're going to start thinking, well, that person's different. Something going on in that person. It's appealing because nothing is more satisfying in this world than Jesus. And as you become more like Jesus, people see that. That's the good fruit that is being witnessed because of what God has done in your heart. Let's pray.